Welcome back to the Twin Geeks. I'm here halfway through my 30s. This is Calvin. I'm here with David. Hello. Yes, uh, belated happy birthday to you, Calvin. I've become an old person. I've always been old spiritually. Uh, our good friend uh, Stephen of, of uh, the Twin Geeks uh, told me privately that you're you're ever closer to the forty you've always been. <laughs> me uh, personally, yeah. I okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. I once I'm forty, I'll be fifty. I think is the way this is going. I've lived two lives. It's a it's a long story of my life, and I uh, I don't know. I've been through a lot, so I'm uh, happy to be any age anymore. I guess. Uh, Mm-hmm. Um, happy to be here recording this. Uh, a few years into our run, four years maybe, we we come back to a, one of the movies that solidified our friendship and uh, was kind of the impetus for the show, uh, which we'll get to a bit later, I believe. But uh, I'm very excited to uh, at least kind of glaze over it and be like, this movie is important to us. Uh, this is this is a movie of this show. Yeah, it, it'll be a hard one to talk about any further i think as we said uh is 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 there much left to be said even between us but uh yeah we're, we're back for our second uh set of altman films continuing to move through the filmography of uh robert altman here's where we get into the the, the, the really good stuff got a lot of really great films to talk about this week um some many have seen i'm sure and may, maybe one or two people haven't yet but yeah, and a, a good lineup, and uh, this is where we really start to see him come come to the the come into the fold here. I think we 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 mentioned in the the last one where with uh, that cold day in the park and Mash, it felt like you see Altman for the first time as a director, that that personality and that style and that voice, and it's just omnipresent. I think from here on out, if that was his emergence, this is really him coming into the own. Altman as a figure that we know today that we when we say Altman this is what we talk about I think a hundred percent is there any other qualifiers or should we get into the first one well it's been a few weeks so uh um we both had a lot going on I was in the middle of a move so I I just want to qualify that we are doing the show on a regular basis again uh, yeah it's it's been a little inconsistent there's been a lot going on both times it's also the summertime you know just just shit happens uh but you know at, at no point were we not doing this. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's a uh, lot to take in. Canceled. Yeah. For, for uh, those yeah. who were worried. Uh, kind of the breadth of this, it's kind of odd because it felt like, well, do I need to watch any of these? Do I need to start prepping for this? Well, I've seen most of these. Uh, so it kept uh, going on the back burner while I had huge priorities, like moving everything I own to it. And, to and Piranha 2, huge priority. Piranha 2. Yeah, I had to watch Piranha 2 before I could get to it. Uh, McCabe and Miss Miller and uh, the long goodbye. Uh, should we say the movies we're going over uh, before we get going? Sure, 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 for those listening along. So in order of release, um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Images, The Long Goodbye, California Split, and Thieves Like Us. Perfect. Should, uh, should, should we be announcing those at the end of every podcast for people yeah, who want to keep up? Okay, I'm going to start doing that if I remember. Yeah, that would be good. Um because I need to know. Uh, most of the time, I don't know what I'm doing next time. And I have to look over the list. And I'm like, well, I don't know what, what this podcast is. Uh, we do about five movies, four or five movies each show. It's, it's going to be five for the rest of Altman. Okay. Uh, that's a lot. It's a big load, but I think we're going to move. Five films every two weeks? Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll get to them all. Yeah, easy. Um, 
less easy is trying to add anything new to a conversation that we've had a few times, I think. And, and personally, it's kind of the conversation we've always had with each other, which is uh, McCabe and Miss Miller, I think it summarizes every conversation we had on the website. <laughs> I, I, I think so. It, it really is our movie, I think, above anything yeah. else. Um, uh, you know, I, I said this on different discussion with Steven somewhere. I'm sure we said it during our McCabe and Mrs. Miller episode, which was 51, if you want to go back and listen to that one. I don't usually advocate listening to old episodes, but I'm pretty sure that one's still good. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is this is kind of the impetus for the website. This was the film that brought us together. It was a film I had seen only maybe a couple months before, and it was like we were, we were looking to talk about a Western together. We were, we were going to do like a writing project together. And I proposed this one as like a revisionist Western that I, that I knew was good. And, you know, it seemed like once, but I, I don't think I knew how good that first time. And then we watched it together one morning and it, and it really was like the whole world opened up. It's like the dragon you're always chasing when you find that movie, especially with another person. It's like the thing that this podcast is about is finding another McCabe and Miss Miller. I think we, I don't think we have found another one that's as good and revelatory for us, but how could there be? Um, yeah. Well, well so, there couldn't be. And certainly nothing as hyper specific. It was a convergence yeah. of things that we had very specific interests in. Like, like it was, you know, very particular that Pacific Northwest interest. You know, it's set in, you know, in, in the like southwest, uh, southeastern Washington, I believe. Um, you know, so this this idea of a you know a, a western that reflected our particular environmental you know surroundings as well uh, well was of a special interest. And, and again, the whole the genre itself, you know, was one that appealed to me and you specifically. There was a time on the show where we were like every two weeks or so covering a a, a new western film. I I, I originally pitched the podcast as we just cover westerns. I don't think it really sucks, <laughs> but I that was my first idea for what we should do. But that was just based look, on what we connected on. Look, if we get bored of this director format, you know, <laughs> I I could I could switch gears. Uh, there's okay. a lot of there's a lot of really interesting westerns out there. Don't doesn't even have to be John Ford anymore. We can ignore him entirely if you want. Yeah, we could do uh, the most important westerns. First cow, um, the other Pacific Northwestern western. <laughs> Northwestern Western. Western. Um, uh, Leonard Cohen, too, one of my favorite uh, musical choices. I think we connected on that. Yeah, I, I remember you You mentioned like you had seen him in concert like earlier that year or something. Oh, no, it was like I had just gone to Montreal and it was during like the um, Canada Day and I went to the museum and they had this really mm. lovely display like uh, memorializing him. And as I walked through the hall, oh. I saw him like an imposing huge thing on the side of a building of the museum outside. And then I walked in the room and I just just like pure dark and just watching this Leonard Cohen thing with a group of Canadians celebrating themselves. It was a, a good heritage moment, I thought. That, that makes sense. Of course, you didn't see a concert. He was dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that makes more sense. But yeah, no, so, and, and so when it opens with that, with the with the Stranger song as uh, Warren Beatty is rolling into town there, it, it was immediately like this point of interest that, that stuck out to you and, you know, and kind of started the whole... Uh, hook and and I feel like even without that personal interest, the song itself obviously just really immediately pulls you into the movie. It pulls you into this place and this setting and this space of mind, really, uh, and in such a brilliant 
song choice. Is there a better like song choice, like like accompanying, you know, that's not pre-composed for it? Because that's the other incredible yeah. thing about it. Like you listen to it, there's like four Leonard Cohen songs used throughout the film, and they feel like like another case of you know um, of you know uh, a, a pop artist uh, you know composing songs for for a film you know it's got the same feeling like like if you've got simon garfunkel working on the graduate or bob dylan you know doing the soundtrack for pat garrett and billy the kid you know just these 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 wonderful folk artists you know uh entirely wrapping their style around you know the the, this atmosphere of the film but that wasn't the case for mccabe mrs miller robert altman heard him at a party like like they had his songs on at a party and f- first of all what parties are playing the leonard cohen songs like that like that's not th- that's already kind of odd to me uh, for for the, the kind yeah, of what kind of party was it really i mean great parties obviously but like not yeah. the kind of party like when you say party i don't think about leonard cohen songs <laughs> sure but he did and and so he called up cohen and there, there, there's a great anecdote from cohen who in the book um their old biography for uh robert altman where uh altman calls him up and he, he you know asks him uses uh songs and he's like uh is there any movies of yours that i've seen and altman says oh yeah i just made this really big you know hit it was called mash he's like oh, i've never heard of it i don't know what mash is he's like oh uh, okay well uh, i also just did this other thing uh you know it's called brewster mcleod but you know no one's really seen it or anything he's like oh I saw that just the other day. You, yeah. that was great. You can have, you can have everything. You can have anything you want. He, Leonard Cohen loved Brewster McCloud. He had like I'm just glad seen, he hadn't seen Mash. <laughs> I, I feel like Leonard Cohen and Mash wouldn't have been like the uh, sign off on his music. Uh, mm-hmm. so, um, mm-hmm. I think that the anachronism of that too is uh, as chilly and chilling as anything that um, the way it works in the setting. I think works very well. And also Leonard Cohen is like the poetic voice of Canada, I think projects well in like the Northern uh, Hemisphere in Washington state, particularly. Oh, it was as, shot like, in honorary Canada. It was shot in Canada as well. It was shot yeah, in BC, Vancouver. Yeah. Um, I think, so I, I think ever since, it. ever since uh, Altman worked in Vancouver for Cold Day in the Park, I think he probably just really loved it because he shot McCabe there. He wanted to shoot images there as well. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so it, it but it works really well because the environmentally it and Washington State are fairly similar, you know. They're 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 very close there. And it's kinda of just like that music's kinda of embedded in the bones of the place. Like the those like wintry folk songs I think are, are really good in a, a a real like logging area in the mountains of the northwest. It just well. yeah, it just it suits it to a T, uh both melodically and lyrically. Um you know, you, you, you really sense, and again, like, even if it's not contemporary, if it's not literal to the time period, this, this turn of the century, um, you know, area, it's spiritually of the same kind, and, and you feel an authenticity in their pairing. And that's what's really important. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's not, a historical fidelity is not, you know, a, a strict adherence. Of course, I think that it's just such a, a good setting as well like the mountainous region i like a snow western i like a, a lot of the things happening here i mean i love our dusty southwestern uh prototypical westerns but the craggy rock faces but but moreover i love uh, greenery i mean i like a 
I mean, I'm connected to the land. I think you probably are too. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's a it's a nice reminder. It's a nice reminder that the 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 taming of the West or the, the pioneering there is exclusively to Southern California and the the New Mexico area. You know, the the West was a large you know northern and southern area that was being taken at the time and is often left out of our mythology of the mm-hmm. West. Uh, but and, and and we see that there are any number of other winter westerns as we you know like to call them that uh the the environment whether they're you know these uh water starved you know desert locales or these you know blanketed snowy you know rain drenched uh northern areas the 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 environmental struggle that is a constant theme of westerns uh applies in in both directions and, and that's the whole kind of point here of what Altman is doing by upending the typical stereotypes of a Western film. Very, very intentionally, he dubbed McCabe and Mrs. Willer an anti-Western. He went out of his way to do like almost everything the opposite of your typical Western conventions, while still yeah. while still keeping the spirit and the ideals and the themes of the Western film, and really finding the truth at the at the center of it. Once you strip away all of the you know cliches and the the stereotypes and stuff you get to the heart of what a western film is about there's also an anachronism in doing it that way i mean just something about this land acquired after the louisiana purchase makes it more recent history than anything in the uh, southwest uh, a more recently discovered territory i guess even if it's 100 years later and you're like basing it then it's like a well, this isn't the original land. Like this is a something expansive. That's a looking toward new opportunities, which is a thing westerns are about. And the end of an era is also an expansion into a new era, which and, is another and, western trademark. And I think the western suits Altman very well. At least this particular flavor of western, because he is very keyed in on this a sense of community and of building yeah. that. And above all, I think that's what. McCabe and Mrs. Miller is about as a Western is about this founding of a community and of, and of civilization, you know, kind of coming together. Uh, one, one of the main, you know, uh, appeals in the movie, the main ideas is that the, in the background, you see this town developing, you know, from the ground up, you see them literally building the sets, you know, uh, the, the film is still, uh, was made in yeah. sequence so that they could construct this town and see it evolve and prosper out of the the the, the muddy lands that they you know settled on up north mm-hmm. and it and, and you watch it happen in the background as you do with all of these colorful characters that pop always populate altman films and there are these very specific people who are never the center of what's going on but always so pivotal to the the nature of the setting and it it's just that the the story centers around this one proprietary individual who is really making inroads in in the town and and looking to get ahead and and, and really make a name for himself there in the form of McCabe when he when he ride rides on in and immediately makes a, a stunning impact at the bar. I think as you're saying, um, I think. Roger Ebert kind of brilliantly said uh, that Ampersand means that it's about incorporation and about uh, like a team coming together. It's McCabe and Miss Miller, Miss McCabe, Ampersand, Miss Miller, yep. and then they're a company, like they're they're working as like a 
a foundational company that's growing this town and it's a, or whatever it means. It's a con it's a conscious choice as well, because that's not the name of the novel. The name of the novel is just McCabe. So mm -hmm. very intentionally, they changed the title to include Mrs. Miller as a co-equal partner in the story there. Uh, and obviously the one who really pushes McCabe to be, you know, an innovator for the town uh, and to really push things forward and to be a, a proper businessman and not just settle for, you know, the, the, the pennies that he can, you know, take from from the, the townspeople there. Is it uh, too late to change the podcast name to Kemp and Mr. Punch? <laughs> <laughs> it might it might be. Uh, a good substitute or something thereof. <laughs> Should have been the, like the, the name of this uh, series. <laughs> the twin, the twin, and the geeks. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think that's fine. Um, there's a uh, something about also Warren Beatty and uh, Julie Christie, of course, that just like their chemistry and where they were in real life at the time. And mm -hmm. uh, there's there's so much to them. Uh, you there, could read so much into them. There's a large chunk of of the book which is just people bitching about Warren Beatty on the set. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then and then a, a lengthy section of Beatty defending himself against accusations <laughs> <laughs> like, of, of kind of being, you know, uh, you know, wanting to control things and being specific. Like, he was very against them. Uh, one of the techniques they did for the film, which gives it its unique look, is that Altman and the cinematographer, Vilmos Sigmund, uh, flashed the negative, which means that after after shooting it, they exposed the negative to light uh, to to oh, give it this more okay. wa washed out look. That's where you get those those really you know autumnal cover uh, colors from. They really uh, you know the, the technique, but they did it to the ne negative of the film. So you know um, if anything went wrong, that was it. And and Beatty was like like really like not sure about that. You know I, I think understandably to a certain point, but also yeah. as you can see, the, the desired effect was achieved with a plum. The film looks stunning. It's, it's absolutely, uh, uh, you know, visually enrapturing, but yeah, all, all sorts of other issues with Beatty. I said, he, he was just apparently hard to work with, which is, you know, uh, notorious for Beatty, but <laughs> it's, it, it, it was a funny section of it. Cause it's just like a parade of people like just bashing him and then Beatty, you know, just just like like counterpointing everything trying to defend himself or dismiss things and say that didn't happen i didn't yell at bob's wife at the premiere or whatever and everyone else said that he did that's all very funny um yeah Beatty is a character and uh um came with a lot of baggage uh that's that's interesting but too. but uh, but one of the important character. things yeah one of the important things is that everyone praised him of course in the film and that right. uh, that that he was in particular altman saying how important his his impact was and how the you know the film works because of his performance and and such you know that there is an a sense of irreplaceability to Beatty's performance here that no amount of ego could supersede yeah um I think this in league with the the great silence are the two uh, great no westerns, the, the two essentials that I need everyone to see to understand uh, anything about where I'm coming from in film. I guess uh, I, I'd hope they had seen those if they're reading anything I'm writing or listening to us, because uh, because how else are you going to know what we're saying? Um, I think I think so. There's other snow westerns, but they often feel more like a novelty, like the setting yeah, is like an like, interesting twist. You mean like Cutthroat's Nine? The <laughs> 
that's another one. No, <laughs> uh, nobody needs to watch that, but uh, I'd, I'd like everyone to. Uh, mm-hmm. Ready, uh, repugnant stuff. The, um, the the snow is actually a, uh, a kind of spur of the moment thing. It's it started snowing on set, and they they made use of that for the big finale of the film. But it's it's so wonderful, and again, it just this uh, incredible subversion, and and the silence that comes with the the, the snow is kind of deafening you know it, it feels oh, yeah. like this oppressive blanket that's cast on this big gunfight finale that's kind of spread across the whole town as simultaneously you have this big fire ha- you know uh bursting out of the church yeah it's like after all this development then where do you go what's the result uh once you've developed a town in the new west uh, yeah it's an interesting movie i i need everyone to see it um I guess we had more to say about it than we thought because I don't know about some of these others. I mean, I, I could keep going on McCabe because yeah. there's so many things worthy of praise. You know, uh, this is that all of this was not even talking about the the role Keith Carradine plays and the yeah. the haunting moment on the bridge. Uh, there's all all of the incredible utilizations of the zoom lens. This is I think when Altman really really falls in love with the zoom lens. That was another anecdote. The Western it, standby. I mean, the zoom lens so important to the Western. Mm-hmm. In particular, like the Italian ones, but the the way the the slow way in which uh, Altman uses it to to constantly like push in on things to an extreme degree uh, it provokes such emotion. I, I remember there's an anecdote from Kubrick who was like amazed with um, how Altman used zoom lenses on this film, and then you can kind of see that influence then. Uh, take on things in like Barry Lyndon, for example, which is yeah. comparable in the way it utilizes zoom lens to evoke, you know, powerful emotion. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it's such a, a, a masterwork and a beauty of, of technical craft, you know, the, the, the camera work and the different things they did with the film, the music utilized throughout. And again, this, uh, this, this is one of the times where you get this sense of Altman, how he's using overlapping dialogue one of his signatures to create this larger sense of 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 a people of a community you know to, to kind of reinforce that theme there that there are these constant conversations happening and you're hearing these select important bits yeah uh and, and it pieces together a whole idea of, of, a, of a larger portrait of an interconnected town who have their own different problems and you know different livelihoods while this uh this this play essentially is taking place between you know a, a growing entrepreneur you know building up this business in a town and then it being attempted to be boxed out by the, the, this larger corporation that's essentially coming in and wanting to take over the whole business they, they, they want to make the whole place uh you know a, a corporate town essentially i think it's so smart that it comes in as like a stranger comes to town story but then he gets to sit down at the table and uh, that's the perfect setting where at poker we know the rules of the game and engagement but uh, we get to find out a lot about the people around the table and, and just around them in the bar uh, it, it says so much about them uh, does it does he order the eggs is that what it was he, he yeah the eggs? yeah yeah the, uh, that a lot the last time we did his, his signature drink uh <laughs> yeah yeah, I don't know. Again, it's it's a film with endless details to discuss. Um, you know, just a, a immaculate 
qualities across the board but also again and and in such a rich history for me and you in particular you know but it would be a, a phenomenal film to dive into regardless of that foundational interest you, know, you don't need to be uh to, to get that out of it i think uh that very constantly amongst his peers this was often recognized as altman's best film and uh I, you know i don't mean to spoil anything but uh we're probably not going to deviate from that consensus <laughs> doubt it but, uh, although uh, we'll although it wasn't see. successful in its time it did not make money surprisingly i wouldn't surprisingly. expect this to uh, uh, uh for some reason i just don't see this as a blockbuster sure case. sure I just think it's interesting because that's going to be the case with a number of other of the films we're t talking about here. So again, one of those things where it's like Altman as a, as a maverick filmmaker in the seventies had constant financial disappointments, but was still allowed to keep making masterworks effectively. And I can't remember if it was here or somewhere else. We talked about it where it was like, that's just not something that's allowed anymore. Like for a filmmaker to, fail consistently you know to yeah, prove themselves the, that's the worst part of modern movies is people don't have the privilege to fail if you do one bad thing there might be a lot of altmans out there we, we'll just never find them um because obviously there's more directors than there's ever been so there's got to be more altmans in them uh, mm -hmm. but i mean you have, you have your kelly reichardt's and your ones that break through your claire denise uh, so that there are those working directors that, that have analog but uh um, they're not allowed many failures, especially those women that, that really have to captivate and make, you know, five good movies before they're really taken critically seriously and people go watch their stuff. But, but the slow cinema or like the cinema that's not like an action cinema, it, I don't think it needs to do well theatrically. So I wish there was more room for a, a later audience to develop and encourage a career that's longer lasting than at the well, box office. Also, just more obviously, this is a. Maybe not the best example because this was during the new Hollywood time where they were just literally scrambling to figure out what was going to be successful with audiences and they were just throwing money at anyone. Um, but like they, they, they really chased filmmakers for their skill and their artistry more than their commercial ability, you know. Right. And, th and there was a certain amount of insider interest, you know, they were interested in promoting people who they found, you know, compelling, you know, as, as, as filmmakers and who, you know, within the Hollywood colony, you know, found interest, but, you know, that even that sense of, of camaraderie, um, and interest in, you know, promoting people who you think are good, doesn't seem to prevail, uh, anymore, at least amongst the, 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 the greater studios, the larger ones there where, you know, they're given opportunities because, their work is admirable, you know, yeah. and, and, and provocative and good and, and not because it's putting butts in seats. And who knows, like the, the modern Altman might be making better call Saul. We never know what's happening anymore between TV and, you know, the uh, streaming. I, and that's and, true. Look, look, Altman, you know, he did 10 years of television directing himself. So, you know, uh, maybe we'll see, you know, in 10 years, the people who were you know, directing our favorite prestige programs uh, are going to make, you know, our, our new cinema classics. Then I see things like the Deadwood movie, the Sopranos movie, the Breaking Bad movie, and I'm like, those had short tales. Like, I mean, like, maybe I wish those guys went and did something else as their big, like, move to a movie. Uh, but, uh, but we got those, those, like, uh, just another long episode of our show we did. Uh, so that's also changed is what the format is, what people can make, and how they get to make it. Uh, well, and, and, and what people are interested in, because those are all... 
yeah, th those are all like IPs, you know, like the the filmmakers who did those big, you know, world renowned television shows. Uh, you know, their foray into film was a continuation of that television show. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's good. Uh, what do we have uh, next year? Next, after uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, was Altman's sole horror film, Images. Okay. Um, images surprised me. I went in thinking about men, which I had just seen a few weeks before, not really being able to connect the dots because I'm exhausted from my moves. So I enlisted Stephen to help me uh, figure out what I needed to say. Which is just about like the uh, conspicuous like gaslighting of women uh, for their femininity and what like men apply to them in these spaces. Uh, it's, a, it's a very feminist film, uh, as, as a lot of Altman films are. Altman has a particular sensitivity for the, the plight of women throughout his films, which which is always on the money, it seems. Uh, and, and this is one of the more interesting ones. Um, it deals with uh, schizophrenia and kind of explicit manner and it kind of puts you in into that perspective in a really you know mind-breaking kind of way um in, in the sense that you're as subject to these hallucinations and these breaks in reality as the the central character is and it, it's a constant you know trick of of the audience and you know um manipulating what you perceive to be real as the, the protagonist does and uh, in, in very chilling ways. Yeah. I, I went through my first review as before I watched it, I, I deleted words like schizophrenia. I don't want to diagnose the film that I watched. That, I was like, Oh yeah. I guess that's, that's the accurate description here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's, I, it, I yeah that's not, <laughs> it, that's not necessarily like a, you know, projecting onto it. It's, 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 it's very, specifically trying to deal with those ideas and that was the, the kind of consensus even when it came out but yeah it's it's not by any means like a a, a medical examination of no, no, that no. but uh, i mean it does have the um illusion of that i think is, is what you're saying like the illusion of a schizophrenic brain that you can't quite trust and you don't know what's happening in it um and it is gaslighting the audience at times wondering i mean it's a good play of perspective and, and seeing it, what they're going through. Mm -hmm. and, and as you indicated there, it's it's definitely about this, uh, this woman's relationship to these men, these abusive men in particular, who have manipulated her in the past uh, and to an extent the present here, and uh, how that, and, and, and also to deal with that mental aspect of it as well, the, the gaslighting aspect, how the one's loose of, of understanding over their own, you know, comprehension of things is is only like like reinforced and harmed further by the insistence of others and the apathy of others to their struggle you know and and, and the inability to you know reconcile with reality i don't know if i entirely get it still i think it almost comes together in a way i understand the movie but um i don't mind not knowing everything about this i i, I think it's a strength you know at, at the same time you know and a weakness to a certain extent as with any film that is intentionally abstract um it's very metaphorical you know it, it uses a lot of you know uh kind of specifically metaphorical imagery and, and it you know evokes these symbols uh in explicit ways throughout but at no point is it uh, entirely clear uh what all of those are supposed to reflect 
you know, explicitly, but I, I, again, like you said, I don't need it to necessarily either. Yeah. What it ex- what it excels at above all is this, you know, kind of tense, paranoid atmosphere that is present throughout the film. Uh, it's it's really unsettling, and you know, you, you're constantly kind of thrown off guard by it, and it's really complemented by a, a beautifully, um, you know, kind of uh, malignant score by John Williams. Yeah, that the John Williams score is interesting. I think that if it has a major fault, it just sits inside that tone, and it's kind of a exhaustion by the end of the film, and I, you're kind I, of waiting for the other shoe to drop, and it just kind of stays there. The the sense I got rewatching it this time was like, it 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 felt like a a, a repeat of the same feeling throughout. Like it it was always great. Like the execution of it was yeah. always phenomenal. Uh, and uh, I was like, all of these scenes are great, but it does feel like I'm experiencing the same sensation every single time. Even though we are building towards a, a revelation, we're building towards some kind of reveal or twist, you know, or, uh, you know, re- uh, knowledge of information, you know, as we learn more about the character and what's gone on and why she's, you know, having these experiences and her memories and such. But all of it, you know, again, the fact that the main function and the main effect is the uh you know the sense and the atmosphere uh and the drama that you get from the tone it uh it's all the same sense and again it's exemplary but it it does one scene doesn't inherently feel different from another no uh, i think that's my thing um i think it needs to almost stay that way to continue to pull its trick right like i think to to stay in the frame of reference which is almost novelistic like the perspective uh, to kind of understand her perspective, I don't think you could switch to another tone without, I think, losing that thread. For no, relationship. I don't. I don't have a suggestion for how to improve right. necessarily because the abstractness of it and that lack of coherence is the central idea, is the thesis, and is the strength of the film. So, trying to create some more concrete through line, I think, would only dilute its effect. Yeah, I think it's just the film got to. Um, perform everything it needed to be as like a, a seven out of 10 movie for me. But I think that's what the movie could have been. I think that's the, the full potential of this. Uh, I, I mean, I, I definitely think I'm a, a bit more enthusiastic about it than you are. But again, I, I totally understand anyone who's like not on board for it because it's, you know, it's, it's specifically not, you know, biting at something, you know, entirely coherent to take away from it's, it's, it's playing with confusion and you know uncertainty at all points um but the power of it of the of the execution is so strong to me that and uh so unique i feel like it's it's really this very interesting and independent uh interpretation of 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 horror for film Mm -hmm. so yeah and i think altman doing horror kind of like the western i mean it's anachronistic it's different than the horse being made at the time uh psychological more than it's like a, a spooky or scary uh, yeah specifically uh, specifically uh altman has stated that he was influenced by the films of joseph losey and in particular you see the influence of uh bergman's persona on it and uh so those european horror uh in, in influences i think really come through as well there's also a certain amount of like uh uh, English horror that that you get from there as well. Um, And it was partway of production made over there. So that, that influence is, you know, uh, noticeable and present. 
I hadn't thought of it, but I could see kind of the, the Englishness of the movie. And the, um, yeah, you could almost say, without the Gothicism, almost the English Gothic style of like how you'd set a place and, and how a place would have uh, atmosphere as its main provocative, it, like a literal whore. Again, another one where Ullman's really good with environments. It was shot in Ireland, and it's it's really beautiful, the locations they use and everything. But again, it's it, I think it's just this really effective, you know, uh, mood piece that, again, while not always you know, understandable and everything is so clear in its intent that it's, it's, you know, worthy of recognition and praise. And again, so individual, um, I, I struggle to think of something, you know, so effectively like it, you know? Yeah. And like I said, uh, man, at the beginning, I think man is this as a total failure of form. Uh, whereas this, I think, a I, I might be more favorable than the first time because I saw an example of how badly it could be done by mm-hmm. Alex Garland, a, a good filmmaker. You, your sympathies are always with Susanna York's character, you know, being yeah. her perspective and such. Um, even as you know, her her own actions become more questionable uh, on it. But yeah, it's it's certainly a phenomenal film. Uh, let's come back in a second here. Let's take a quick break. Yeah, we'll take a break. We'll be right back with the rest of Altman. Well, I live with a child of snow when I was a soldier and I fought every man for her until the nights grew colder. The Long Goodbye, 1973. The film that continually impressed me um, because just how cool and awkward and aloof Elliot Gold could be. This is one of those films where it's 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 so incredible. And again, another continued mission statement of Altman taking these established American genre staples and just entirely turning them on their head and opening them up and finding what's really at the the center of them, you know, the the truth there beneath everything. Uh, but, but it's also a film I, I feel frustrated talking about sometimes because I feel like I see it differently than other people. <laughs> hey, that's okay with me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had uh, started reading the Long Goodbye book uh, too, which is mm-hmm. very good and uh, um, very much of like that lingo, that noir lingo, uh, which is very fun to read and uh, experience on screen. How do you feel you view it differently then? other people do um i i think i don't want to like point to anyone specific or anything but sometimes i feel like the the inherent charm of the film i feel like might trick some people into seeing past what's intentionally being done here how um like uncharismatic it's 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 presenting its protagonist to be uh, I, th- I thought in particularly in, in, in the opening scene, which I think is such a, a brilliant piece of filmmaking and such a definitive mission statement for the film that it, it, it wholly characterizes Elliot Gould's take on uh, Philip Marlowe here. Um, and, but, uh, but what I found this time when, when watching it and what I felt like I was, I was seeing and understanding what people who really love him, you know, and, and, and say he is this paragon of coolness that, that Gould seems to 
possess. Uh, I think I understood why people see him this way this time, because I think the text is telling you overtly that he is a loser, that he is a, uh, that, that he is a schlub, that he is um, not a, a, a character who is, you know, uh, admirable or, you know, who, who people in, like or, or who are drawn to. But we are still because it's number one, it's Elliot Gould. And Elliot Gould is naturally charismatic, but it, I think what comes across in the character and why we as an audience gravitate towards him as Marlowe in particular is because he is indifferent to how he is rejected by the world. Yeah, and, I think like that makes him. And, yeah. So and, it's and that and being like uh, um, kind of unaware is more sexy than someone who's like a. Uh, all alpha, alpha male about like their role as yeah. detective. It's like that's off-putting. You look like a cop. Uh, well, and that and that aloofness is inherent to Marlowe, and that's yeah. and that's the thing, and that's what the movie is getting because it's not that Altman has taken Marlowe and bastardized him and made him like this disgusting, you know, uh, like like you know, reject like this uncool opposite of Humphrey Bogart in The Big Sleep. The thing that Altman gets is that. That's what Marlowe always kind of was, and it's the romanticization of him in the novels and in the media, you know, and, and in the depictions of him by casting people like Bogart and, you know, styling it up and making him hook up with the bookseller in, you know, The Big Sleep. That is the fiction, you know. Yeah, yeah Marlowe. More Marlowe than Marlowe ever was. Mar Marlowe, the character, is a deadbeat is a bored loser, is, you know, a, a social reject, you know, is just scraping by and, and doing, you know, this kind of guttural business of, you know, uh, you know, being a private investigator, which, which itself is a, you know, again, it's a, it's a job that the, the film noir genre has romanticized and made to be this cool, you know, different subversive and inherently, you know, uh, moral, you know, line of work, you know, that it itself is actually, you know, again, it's, it's a fictionalization because, you know, these are the same people who, you know, are, are, are going around and digging up dirt on, you know, people and taking photographs of, you know, illicit affairs and, and stuff. It's, it's an unglamorous job that was glamorized in our, 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 our wonderful, you know, uh, American genres. He reads but, uh, books and he's uh, he trusts the wrong people. He makes a lot of mistakes. He's not a smooth operator in any sense. He's a, uh, Elliot Gould, I feel like, is the right person to possibly play him. No, he has no, an awkwardness of his own. Yes. Uh, no, 100% um, is the case with him. And again, that's why it's great casting. And I think why, you know, because people didn't like the casting, I think, initially. Um, they want, they were pushing for Robert Mitchum. They wanted Robert Mitchum to play Elliot Gould. Or not Elliot Gould, uh, Philip Marlowe. Which yeah. is funny, because two years later, they did get Robert Mitchum playing uh, Philip Marlowe in an adaptation of Pharaoh My Lovely, which is great in and of itself, uh, and its own different kind of revisionist, you know, uh, film noir, but very different tonally in terms of what they're, uh, how they're characterizing the uh, the Marlowe character here, but the the film's opening, his ten minute opening sequence, I think is so great because it's like at, at every turn you can see just how out of step he is and how nobody has any respect for him. You know, even his cat, his own cat, doesn't respect him. <laughs> the the yeah. the yeah the the coven of women across the street, you know, couldn't care less about him. They they address him as Mister Marlowe. You know, they have they, they don't see him as any kind of 
uh, threat or any kind of, you know, appeal or anything like that. I don't know. Uh, Do you think that's true? Like, they just want him to join him for yoga. I don't think they see him as a sexual entity. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying is that they don't they don't see that about him at all. But he does like and he has, a you know, under his breath, he kind of, you know, has, has these suggestive comments about them. You know, they're over there practicing yoga, making brownies half naked to you know because they feel so un, un you know undaunted by him you know i don't know if i read it that i can't I, I can't tell if there's some relationship between him and that, that that's happened there but i i, I think everything i think everything else about the film reinforces that idea to me especially in the opening okay. especially in the opening segment but again you're not the only one to disagree with me so maybe i'm just you know i i could be off the mark well i just read it as there's a lot of sexual tension there not necessarily that it's fucking and you know i don't think he fucks as much as he wants to fuck her. Better. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think we're on the same page. Because he, he very explicitly says he's, you know, like, you know, makes mention of the, the, the girls and how he, you know, w- would do something with them. But the whole tone of the scene indicates that he has no chance. There's there's nothing there at all yeah. from from them because they see him as, you know, as such a non-entity. You know, he's, he's they call him the nicest neighbor we've ever had. That's, that's the way that one of them addresses him. And I guess like, our difference is the non-entity part, is that I think he's really interesting, that he's like a safe guard for them in a way. Yeah, uh, but I think because, I, I guess it's, uh, I might just have a hard time describing it, you know, in terms yeah. of his, his characterization. Uh, but the whole point of him, um, in, in, in terms of what Altman wanted to do, was that they wanted to take him, like the, the sensibilities and the characteristics and everything about the, the 1940s, you know, noir protagonist and chuck him wholesale into the, the contemporary 1970s. You know, uh, every, everything about Marlowe is still of his, you know, past self. You know, he still drives the old car. He still has these uh, old points of reference, these, these cultural points, you know, and, and it keeps reinforcing this 1940s mindset and, and morality on him uh, in, in a world that is not at all reflective of that kind of black and white nature. Sure. I haven't thought that clearly about that. Yeah, it's a very much him transported to a new place and well, making references nobody understands. They called him on set. They called the character Rip Van Marlowe as as a okay. reference to Rip Van Winkle. So it was, a, it was a very intentional choice of this character out of time mentality. You know, again, not not literally in the text. You know, there's there's nothing to say that he's literally yeah. a 1940s detective, but that's, that's yeah, the spirit I, of it. I didn't see that part. I, I, I feel like the text isn't saying constantly. He's like, no. it's just the way it's not about. everything about him. They characterize him in, in the very 1940s way. And also, even like there's, there's like small details, like his, his prices for like, you know, his, his jobs or whatnot are in right. line with yeah. what the cost is. But that is not saying explicitly that, but again, like everything about it is supposed to reinforce the idea is that here is this character who is completely, out of step and out of time with everything in the world around it because everything else is so exceedingly 1970s and the sensibilities are so much that and the aesthetics you know he's in a world that he very much doesn't fit in i feel like it would just take a small push for him to become unhinged too he doesn't seem so different from the uh the, the bad guys the way he seems like he has a lot of desperation and uh um, he's not like a a valiant detective who's like living the cleanest life himself Mm-hmm. And again, like I think that goes back to this idea of what the the kind of private eye is versus what we've pictured him as and what we've depicted him as, and you know, in our in our media for so long. 
and and what the the idea of you know the, the real Marlowe behind the fantasy and and you see that and you know how he does only have this this one friend who ultimately isn't even really a friend to him as we find out by yeah. the end and uh all these shady characters who he ends up getting caught up with uh again like with n- no one who has any co- real consideration for him you know and only use him as a means to an end and it's yeah it's this, it's this interesting nihilistic uh but just totally enrapturing you know and, and charismatic portrait of um you know this, this detective story which itself the mystery is almost like a, a non-factor in your interest you know um <laughs> You, you, like you could follow the text. It's a, it's a good through line to keep things interconnected, but ultimately, like you're you're riding the the wave, you know, from a scene to scene basis and seeing how all these characters interact. As as I think Altman intends, you know, because he's so much more fascinated in characters and dynamics than he ever is in plot or narrative. You can apply it to so many noirs, but also another like framework for the Big Lebowski and kind of like a Cohen's approach. Uh, Cohen's, yeah. of course, a lot of Altman. In the Cohen's work, mm-hmm. and, and uh, Big Lebowski, obviously, a really great example of you know, like, like, kind of literally taking the the general ideas of like another Marlowe case in, in in the Big Sleep, and you know, just putting a character who is entirely unequipped to actually deal with that, because that's that's the other thing I think about Marlowe is that he's he's ineffectual ultimately. Uh, you know, he he kind of meanders his way into solutions and discoveries but he doesn't do, do so with like cleverness or you yeah, know skill so he falls it, into solutions they, they happen just by chance uh he's messy yeah. and uh disheveled and that's still a lot of fun i kind of like the dude would be um but in that case maybe it's like the plot line as a approach the modern day and the dude's just like a guy from the 90s anyway uh who would just be there um and he's kind of like in rupture and like the, the noir, kind of like a reverse of what this would be. Mm-hmm. Um, he's pulled into like an old plot line of a lost money bag and, you know, big names that are big money, old money in the town. <laughs> so it's kind of a, a opposite of what, what this ends up being. Um, and I think he's more charming generally, but uh, yeah, I think uh, this is an exceptional Elliot Gould that kind of shows his full range and his ability. <laughs> Is it the best Elliot Gould? It might be. He again. He's yeah, so, so. He's again. He's he's so charming, but uh, w- without losing any of that those unappealing factors of of the character that kind of make him, you know, a born loser, as as they, they kind of say at the end. The, those are all inherent to him, but it's his embrace of those characteristics and his his nonchalance about it that make him such a you know an, an enviable person almost again it's 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 almost anathema to what the text is telling you and that's why it's so effective and it gets at the heart of what is appealing about that you know kind of you know aloof character uh, Another- speaking of being aloof and the uh um and the ending here uh i don't think i really caught up on like the third man of it all like the framing of that ending is kind of the same as that like the walk away this slow walk, but he does it funny. He, you know, he does a funny dance and uh, starts grabbing people and dancing with them again. He, uh, he projects more on other people than, than they want him to. And it's interesting how the film bookends with the, uh, the Hollywood song, the hooray for Hollywood. It opens oh, yeah. with that. And again, this kind of, kind of like this, you know, like we're, we're entering this world of, you know, this nostalgic fondness for this 
stereotypical Hollywood character. And we close the book on him at the end as well. And in between the score is this, you know, constant refrain of this wonderful and varied theme that, that again, another John Williams composition here, this composed uh, with lyrics. I think the lyrics are by Johnny Mercer, if I remember right, who is a uh, staple of, of like the musical genre, you know, writing and such, which is really, again, another interesting tie there, but <laughs> Maybe the best example of this kind of idea uh, you just infused throughout the film where it's just the one theme, the one, you know, leitmotif throughout in different variations, you know, and you get it in all sorts of different ways um, that are diegetic within the film. Uh, maybe like the most interesting one is like during the uh, funeral procession uh, across the border in Mexico and you've got that, you know, that kind of traditional me Mexican variation of the, the long goodbye theme. <laughs> Yeah, it's neat. Um, I, I do like the music. I, I don't know about like the hooray for Hollywood, except that I think it's showing uh, something uh, darker about Hollywood, I guess. And uh, then that, that song plays into that. Um, uh, it's not the golden age anymore, of course. And uh, what's left is just backlots that are, you know, yeah. underutilized and abandoned mostly. The end of the film, and as the title might indicate, is really like it's it's the death of Marlowe as a character. It is the long goodbye for him. Yeah. You know, it's this slow march towards you know uh, a conclusion of this character again, uh, a character who never truly existed in in reality to begin with. You know, this idea of a you know suave and competent and moral you know uh, detective. You know who who would uh, be there to you know write the ills of, of society and and such again a, a person who only existed in the the, the machinations of our of our writing of our uh, social interests, um, and you know yeah, who a, who all men, long, yeah. <laughs> who all men's brain. Go ahead. You could call it the long goodbye to Hollywood as well, in that kind of storytelling where that kind of character is also done in the 70s and yeah kind of putting that stake through which, which is interesting because this is happening in the midst of a revival of you know the noir genre like we have these all these new noirs popping up around the same time i mentioned the the mitchum ones but you also got like chinatown coming out the next year right. yeah. with its own reverent yet cynical take on the noir protagonist you know and both of these feel like an end to something right yeah, again, it's it's a, it's a revisionist work, you know, as as Ullman is doing so often with these, you know, American staple genres here, as he did with like McCabe, and Mrs. Miller as well, where he's saying, "I'm taking the conventions of this genre that are very well established and you know rooted into our cinematic history, and I'm going to upend them. I'm going to root tear them apart, and I'm going to get to the center of it. And I'm going to show you the the you know what all of the you know main things, the ideals here, uh, at, you know." that kind of compel all of this and that make it su such a rich thing to begin with beneath all of the cliches and tropes and expectations that we have, you know, by stripping all that away and giving you the inverse of that, here's what, what remains is what is true, what is honest about the genre and what it reveals. That's okay by me. <laughs> it's a great movie. I, I still love it. I love it more. I saw something called the silent partner in between watches. Um, in between the last watch and this one, a Daryl Duke movie, um, which is kind of Elliot Gould playing into the same characterization as he's like a bank teller. And uh, uh, Santa Claus holds him up at the mall. And he kind of gets like that same, like, oh, just disheveled guy. 
and he ends up being heroic in a way. Uh, that's a cool uh, kind of cult movie. Um, uh, recommended. This was really a revival for Elliot Gould, which is kind of surprising to hear because MASH was just three years prior to this. So they kind of fell out of favor in that very short time period is uh, interesting. But uh, Altman really brought it back into the fold and they, they continued on into their, their next film together in uh, California Split. Yeah. Uh, is California, is that next? Are we up yep. on California Split, the second best poker movie of the day after McCabe and Miss Miller? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, another uh, corollary, the card counter, a bad version of this or a, a version I like and nobody else does of this. <laughs> it seems seems to be just lots of things. I didn't. There's a, a James Con movie from the same time period. The the Gambler. Um, I, th I think we said this is a prequel to Ocean's Eleven because it, like yeah. Yeah. we like to think that Elliot Gould is just the same guy, just like you know, forty years later or whatever. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Ocean's Eleven's kind of all them playing into whatever their primes were. Like the that movie's just celebrating the primes of all these actors and. A really fabulous way. Uh, the, the, the casting of Elliot Gould is definitely intentional as a as a throwback to this time period where he really was, uh, you know, the, this this unconventional you know uh, star in, in 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 New Hollywood. You know, uh, again, like uh, at no other time in history would the kind of you know Elliot Gould be, you know, a a forerunner and a marquee you know uh, name than in the mid nineteen seventies in Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it would never made it anywhere else. And I think he yeah, the, the, there's a reason his career bad. flagged after after this, you know, and it's it's not his fault. It's just the sensibilities of the industry. But he was there at the right place at the right time, and thank God because I can't get enough of Elliot Gould, especially in this movie. God, is he the MVP of California Split? There's so much joy and so many great moments in this movie. Uh, it's strung together oddly, but I think there's uh, just so much that's funny and interesting about it. It's it's one of Altman's most freewheeling for sure. Maybe only second to Brewster McLeod as far as like just you know rolling along and being really interesting, but not necessarily headed towards a specific destination. Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know like what the whole of the movie is. I don't again kind of like with images. I think it's kind of doing one thing in its freewheeling nature, and I don't know that it goes anywhere for me. But I enjoy. It. Pretty much every step of that process. I'll, I'll say that I'm surprised that it doesn't resonate with you more specifically because it's very much so a film about addiction and struggling with that. Uh, and in particular, here the vice is gambling, um, and, and we see that through uh, the the George Segal character. Um, you know, is the one who struggles primarily. Um, but yeah, that that central theme of you know uh, in conflict. Uh, doesn't manifest entirely as a you know uh, as a sympathetic plight there. It's it's the backbone uh, for you know the story's drama and trajectory, but uh, it doesn't drive it as much as the just the, the general pace and wit of the film does. I like how it looks about these people that are just kind of like on the fringes of society, how they're living how a gambler really lives in that time, I think it's fascinating and fun. And uh, really strange, like, I mean, uh, where else are you going to get guys like sitting around the uh, breakfast table having some um, uh, sugar cereal while, while they're all smoking and, you know, asking for some milk and having a beer at the same time. Uh, so many senses going on there. Uh, all my senses engaged. 
Yeah, and it's just really sharp that that scene in particular you're talking about. There's you know just kind of this great back and forth and dialogue between just just talking about breakfast, you know, and what they're going to yeah. have, you know, and it, it none of it necessarily means something, you know, in in the wider sense of the film, but it's incredibly endearing and naturalistic. It's that it's this this perfect you know uh, summation of this uh, ultimate appeal in terms of the approach of dialogue and performance. And it's, uh, you know, maybe the most potent example of that is filmography, but it also kind of shows the downsides of that and the the uh, un uncontrolled nature of it that can can manifest when uh, there, there's not something m more structural, you know, kind of holding it all together. Yeah, um, true. And that's also kind of the framework of the movie. I think it makes sense in some uh, measure that it's, uh, so unarranged and disheveled again. Uh, Elliot Gould uh, getting very good at playing disheveled people. Uh, yeah, yeah, and it's. Uh, I think it, uh, it starts out stronger than it ends up being as it goes along. It has a good yeah. focus in the beginning, um, and you're kind of totally along with it, and then it just it kind of meanders and loses the way, but never to a point where it's like uninteresting. When we watched this one together as part of our new. Uh, weekly slash bi-weekly uh, watch party in the Twin Geeks Discord for but these uh, development the films. It's, it's on the website. There's a there's a tab now that says Discord. You say community. I changed it. Yeah, yeah. Um, please please join it and uh, yeah, because um, we're doing a lot of this and we're always talking about uh, all the movies we're watching and such. Anything that's going on the site, all the podcast people are here. You know, um, but yeah, and, and now we're doing this weekly or bi-weekly movie watch. Um, for whatever directors we're going through. And so, you know, yeah. all, all the rest of these Altman films, we're, we're gonna be picking out a handful of them to watch and discuss with people while we're going through them. So this was the highlight of this week. And I, I said to you when we were watching it that this is the, uh, I, I guess to go back earlier, if I said, if MASH is the last picture show of this podcast, then California Split is the St. Jack. <laughs> yeah, I, I see a lot of the same St. Jack energy. Uh... Yeah, in, in the thing vibes there. In, in the sense that it's incredibly charismatic. It's got like great, you know, performances and dialogue, and it's really, you know, like, um, you know, charismatically paced. It just kind of keeps going, but also it's like a, a, a little bewildering. Like you don't quite understand what's happening or where it's going, and it, it kind of just ends at some point. It, like there's, there's no you know, concrete resolution to things, you're kind of just swept up, you know, in its energy. And it's really good at that. But uh, you, you you walk away and, you know, not 100% sure what the takeaway is meant to be. Yeah, for sure. And it has, like St. Jack, there's probably 45 minutes of the perfect movie in both of them. Uh, yeah, both of them really are so close to being great that I think I, they're so fun to uphold just because of the parts that are so good in them. There, um, like yeah. you say, uh, the first 45 minutes of this are enrapturing. Like, I love a process movie that's really about how things work, and you can kind of see the poker playing out and less yeah, literally than the card counter. It kind of goes through, and you kind of get a feel for the poker. Well, it's it's a really nice intro in that uh, over this this kind of like loudspeaker narration that they have. They uh, quickly explain the rules of poker in a way that feels you know inherent and ingrained into the the movie there. Uh, so that you're not you're you're not entirely ignorant of what's happening, but but it doesn't you know like, just like spell it out in a kind of you know blase way either. You know it's very much ingrained to the very the, the opening tone setting minutes of the film. So that's uh, a really nice 
aspect of it. Again, I think uh, an example of Altman's uh, economy as a filmmaker. But yeah, it's 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 a really great example of his direction. Um, but uh, it also kind of showcases how a good script is is still a necessity, you know, and so many times, even though Altman doesn't believe in, you know, a final script or anything, uh, he, he usually has a way of, you know, manifesting a script from, you know, uh, improv, improvisation, you know, along the way. But I think this is a good case of where it doesn't quite come together entirely. Again, it's, it's missing, you know, a more concrete thesis um, that I, I, I just think a stronger script could have provided. Sure. Um, yeah, I think there's, there's, it's almost there and just needs a little structuring and uh, maybe, maybe that's antithetical to how it, the movie actually works and who these people are, but uh, yeah. I want to see more yeah. at the end. It's another case as well where it's like, again, the, the appeals of it are so evident that for anyone who, who disagrees with his weaknesses and says that this is one of his best, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I totally see where that perspective comes from. And, and, you know, I don't begrudge anyone that opinion. Uh, it, it, it is very appealing film. It is, it is good, even great almost. Um, but th th there's definitely aspects where it feels like it doesn't quite land in the way it should, at least for us, it seems. Yeah. Um, should we take another break here and come back in a bit? Are you okay with that? Yeah. Just one more film after that. Okay. Uh, we'll do the other film and the, uh, ranking on the other side of our break here. Now you hate to watch another tired man lay down his hand like he was giving up the holy game of poker. And while he talks his dreams to sleep, you notice there's a highway that is curling up like smoke above his shoulder. It's curling just like smoke above his shoulder. Back again, Thieves uh, Like Us, as they say. That's another good name for a podcast. Yeah, a uh, podcast about Altman, uh, podcasters like us. I guess it would be a good name if it was a better movie. Yeah, yeah if it were more uh, nostalgic. Uh, I watched it, I was like, uh, that's fine. I, I barely paid attention. I, I don't. So it's, it's another in the kind of uh, chain of films and kind of semi-nostalgic lenses of like the depression era gangster movies uh it, it has a similar aesthetic and style it feels like as uh bonnie and clyde and such it's even adapted from a novel that was inspired by the same same novel that nicholas ray uh adapted into they drive by night um mm -hmm. but it but it's stripped a, a lot of the allure and romance it's it's kind of pensive in its uh, reflections on things. It takes out a lot of the the, the violence and excitement. Uh, any violence that does remain is, is kind of this, this haunting portrait that, that you get of destruction, but it's very infrequent. Uh, and, you know, it's it's an intentional choice. So I don't want to say that it, it being less exciting is, uh, was a bad choice for it necessarily. It just, uh, I, I don't necessarily get anything out of the the more contemplative qualities of it instead uh, the, the the mood piece aspects um yeah uh it's 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 kind of also interestingly like advertised it's like you know you see like thieves like us and it's usually built with like keith carradine and shelly duvall next to each other 
as like the stars. And Shelley Duvall doesn't even show up for like half the movie. Like the first yeah. hour, she's not even like in it. So that's a little misleading. Um, well, then and, it, it does become like a Shelley Duvall movie. It's all about how her eyes are big and lifted on a screen and uh, how she likes to take baths and drink Cokes. Yeah, it's it's about this relationship, like the kind of tragedy between them. But again, because it takes more than half the movie to even develop, you're not really invested, invested in that. In, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's it's really like lethargic, real slow going. Um, which again, I don't think is an inherently invalid choice, but it just doesn't seem to work in, in this case here. Yeah, yeah and, and I struggle to grasp more things to say about it other than how this is, you know, another Lincoln, you know, Altman going through various American genres, this time kind of taking on the gangster films of the 30s yeah. and such, you know, the, the you know, kind of bootlegging crime movies or, or whatnot going on and doing his own different upending spin on it. But this is one of the cases uh, where I, I don't think he quite strikes at the heart of something, of like as we talked about with Long Goodbye or McCabe or whatever, where uh, whatever underlying sensibility about the you know American crime genre of the 1930s, uh, you know, or the uh, youthful rebellion, you know, uh, youth, youth crime films of the the 50s, you know, that he's also kind of channeling here. Uh, I don't think he really he gets it some kind of core thesis to them here. What's you know what, what, what's at the heart of them, uh, particularly in comparison to any of those films, um, you know. Uh, j just going back to Nicholas Ray and in, in doing Day Drive by Night, there's there's definitely you get that sense of of drama and tragedy and naivete and and uh, disillusioned romanticism. That 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 aspect of the, the romanticism is, is is stripped away here. So I think that's just an element that's not even present. So once again, a film that I find a lot of the well, very obvious Coen Brothers uh, influences here to. One of my favorite movies, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? A lot yeah. of framing lifted from this. A little, little bit characterizations of even. Some Miller's Crossing probably as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you see a lot more of uh, the Coens emerging here. Um, but I, uh, I prefer those movies. Yeah. It's also uh, a hard movie to find. Um, I, yeah. I had, yeah, I had to go and rent this one physically because it's not, you know, streaming. It's, it's one of the harder ones. I don't know if it's a... It must be a rights issue or something. But uh, uh, unlike other films, uh, it's not especially missed. Um, I, I think its obscurity has helped it to gain some kind of like cult favoritism, you know, or some okay. or some mention. And it also being like in in that group of the seventies works. You know, we talk about Oldman, we talk about him in the seventies. These this unprecedented, you know, this this string of masterworks here, which I, I think as we find the more we we go through them. There's a little bit of exaggeration to that. There's definitely some, you know, a little, little bit of misfires or uncertainties in between. Uh, but this is in that same lineage, so it kind of gets grouped in with a lot of greatness. But uh, yeah, he's he's doing the same thing. He's aiming to, you know, uh, tackle the same ideas and subjects and themes here in his deconstructive uh, perception of Americana. Um, that. His, his prior films and his celebrated works uh, due to, to such exemplary effect, uh, just not as satisfactorily here. It's, you know, it, it feels kind of inert. Yeah, I agree. Um, perfectly fine, I thought. I, I don't hate it any bit. Um, I like, yeah, Carradine and Duvall are, are fine. They're good together. It's 
Yeah, I, and, and I do I do like opportunities for Keith Carradine to star in things because he's very wonderful, particularly in Altman films. Yeah. And, and putting him at the center is so great. Um, and like like outside of Altman films, I feel like he's <laughs> not really recognized or I don't recall him from, from many other things. Yeah, and, you he know, was a key player. So. Yeah, he, he's definitely one of the recurring Altman groups. And, and that's another wonderful thing about going through these Altman films is seeing all of those favorites pop up again and again, the usual, you know, the, the stock actors and such. Well, this is what... Especially the most justice for uh, Duvall that she yeah. ever received. I think uh, really the highlights of her career that, you know, she, she's talked about for certain things outside this, but uh, I think I, this is the meat of it. I was going to actually bring it up, I didn't during our images discussion, but uh, I, I secretly think images does a lot of the same things that The Shining does, but better. I do too. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, uh, I got, uh, infamously, the Twin Geeks are an anti The Shining podcast. <laughs> I've always been, um, but uh, yeah, I know I, I argued with our friend Tyler that The Shining was that good. But yeah, I mean, something like Images, that's a one-note film, is already better than The Shining. I, I wouldn't say it's one one note, but uh, it, it's repetitive in its uh, effect, yeah. as we said. But anyway, anyway, yeah, that's not thieves like us. We were talking about images. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thieves like us. Duvall is still good, and uh, yeah, I, I'm just really drawn to her eyes. That's all I could really think about. It's such a simple takeaway that she just has great eyes for movies. Ah, uh, that she's got a, a lot of great things here. I guess that yeah. your eyes might be drawn to. Um, uh, yeah. If that if that's something that appeals to you, uh, thieves like us does have that. So. Maybe that's one thing of note, <laughs> yeah. not to objectify. Sure, um, but it's there. And uh, and I mean, Altman frames her well enough and seems to embody something about her that uh, The Shining totally misses. Uh, so that's really nice. Uh, I don't love the film, though. Again, I've, I've given it like a, a curve in my rating because it influenced one of my favorite films. Um, but uh, so I think it's an important piece, and I'm glad it exists. I, I don't really care about it. So. Yeah, it's it's immensely forgettable. I would say, despite the unique Altmanisms about it, um, it's it's definitely like I, I watched it and I was like, oh well, that was a lot of hubbub for nothing. I guess like like <laughs> I, I guess I felt yeah. let down a little bit because this this unattainable nature for it, this lack of access to it, uh, made it seem potentially more appealing than it actually was. Yeah, the reputation far outweighs the reality here. Which is saying something because the, the reputation isn't even that significant. It's not like it's no. a, you know, people talk about it on the same level as like Nashville or the player or something. It's uh, it's talked about kind of as a hidden gem, I think, if it's ever talked about. Uh, and, and I just didn't feel like it was. <laughs> yeah, uh, we don't have to talk about it too much more. I don't mm -hmm. I'll, I'll, although I guess I'll say, just, just so we don't get people who admit, the, the Shining is better than things like us. Yeah, uh, the shining. Not, not that there's much of a comparison point there, but I'd just, agree. Yeah. just in case there needed to be any clarification, we would rank the shining over these like us. And I know I'm the shining disliker on the podcast, but I realized that also shining. I still have like like five or six out of ten. I think it still has merit. It's, um, I feel like it's going down all the time. Like even as you talk about it, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, it, the more I think about that kid like wiggling his finger and how that's supposed to be something, it's just very irritating movie. Worst child actor. Uh, I, I didn't mean to for this to become a shining tangent, but I feel like it started. It started as a bit the hatred of the shining, <laughs> and and now I feel like you believe your own bit, and and you've just committed to it so fully that now it's 
Now, now, now you're just fully behind it now that the shining is by reality. The yeah. thing that was a bit that was like, well, the shining's good. It's not the best movie. Uh, right. Yeah. Now, now it's an actively bad movie. <laughs> and next now week it, it'll be wiggling his finger. Yeah. <laughs> That's all that movie is. Um, uh, speaking that all mo- all movies are, um, how would you uh, rank all the Altman movies? Uh, I think it's pretty evident. Uh, that we're going to have a new top one this week. Do we just maybe a new maybe a new top three or four? Even oh, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. Should we just slide all these movies in chronological order into the list and just call it good? No, uh, no. I, there? I think we need a little bit more nuance. I think we need a okay. little. So, so let's let's just start at the top. So, Calvin, do you want to run through our ranking again? Yeah, uh, sure. Um, it's okay by me. <laughs> Let's see what we have here. Uh, where's our ranking? Uh, you just had it. You just pulled uh, it up. Ranks. Okay. Altman. Um, let's see our ranks here. Cold Day in the Park. Uh, congratulations to Cold Day in the Park for the first time it was ever on someone's uh, list at number one. Right. Uh, we're very proud of you forever. <laughs> I'm just glad that you were there. Uh, thanks for playing the game. Uh, Brewster McLeod. A good movie that's probably on other people's number ones in different ways. Uh, Mash, not on anyone's. I hope. Uh, not, not. No, it definitely is, but like everyone okay, who's n- number one. Yeah, but they're all like forty now, or you know. And they're wrong. Uh, <laughs> the sorry, sorry, boomers. Countdown. Yeah, the link went to countdown. Also, boomer movies, but bad boomer movies. So. Uh, yeah, I don't know that they're ever on anyone's lists, let alone top lists. <laughs> I don't think anyone's seen those last two, but uh, yeah. We, I mean, we did, but, you know, aside yeah. from us. Those define a good bottom that might not be reached for a while. If, if uh, I don't know, I'll be surprised if we go go lower. Like, ba- based on what other people's opinions of Altman movies I've seen are. Right. But uh, I guess I guess we'll see. I, again, at this point in our podcast, the lineage is so strong, it's hard to imagine an absolute disappointment because of all the access and all the willingness to let Altman do Altman that there is in Hollywood. Um, yeah, I, I can't think of any other like looking through all of these, you know, upcoming and knowing like some general opinions about them. Uh, I can't say that there are anywhere Altman was like stymied or put in a box or had to do a one yeah. for them kind of situation. Even like his more, you know, I don't, I don't know, generally accessible ones like the player. That's still like a hundred percent Altman film. Yeah. You know? <laughs> But yeah, that, nothing, think, nothing exclusively mainstream here. Really, it's it's all Altman all the way down. I think he had a very fortunate career that is very rare. Uh, there, I there mean, are very I, few. I think he fought for that career as you know a big piece of it too. Like he, he never compromised. Yeah. You know, he, even on something like Countdown, which became you know very mundane and by the books. Uh, you know, it was because he was fired from the set for being unconventional. <laughs> yeah, it's still not a compromised movie. Uh, he still you know got. I mean, it's. Well, it it's is. compromised, but he didn't compromise. Is the thing. Exactly. He, yeah. It's <laughs> not his fault. Yeah. Um, it was never his fault. All the movies that were his fault seem to be good faults. So. Well, the delinquents might be his fault, but you know, it was his first film, so we'll, we'll give him yeah, that pass. I, I don't know. Is that yeah? It's just like a like a um, it's like a reel of his style. Like it's uh, selling him as a director with a vision. But there's there's not much else there. It was it was competent, you know. But yeah. <laughs> is it? It's uh, it's it's a firm second to last place. <laughs> yeah, the mash. I I don't even know if we'll get as low as mash. That might just be our uh, 
dark horse flow ranking? Uh, well, let's see. Well, let, let's get into it and see. Uh, okay, is is so? Let's start. Is McCabe and Mrs. Miller worse than Mash? Yeah, I mean, in certain <laughs> ways, right? Yeah, I mean, like, look, it, really, a lot of our praise for it is just personal sentiment. Like, you know, we're we're ascribing a lot of flavor here, but if we want to be objective about it, uh, you know, it's it's kind of inferior in, in every way to, well, to Mash, really. Leonard Cohen's songs always made suicide sound so painful to me. Uh, right, right. What if it was painless? Yeah, I, uh, I agree. There's a there's a much better song there already, you know, kind of opening up the film, you know, that's just, just really inviting and uh, sets the tone and, and fits the, the the setting so well. Um, not to mention that you've got the, the really authentic locations of uh, Southern California standing in for <laughs> Korea versus, versus the, you know, Pacific Northwest. Like, that's not Western you know, yeah. at all. <laughs> um, I, yeah, yeah, mash, uh, more like uh, um, mash potatoes. Which are great. I mean, what, what food does McCabe sound like? Uh, eggs and, and whiskey. More like Mc, McDonald's? <laughs> <laughs> uh, sure. Uh, yeah, we have the uh, golden arches, like the, the um, shot of the, the church in the, in the wild. They're one of my favorite shots of all time. It's McCabe, but there's nothing else there. Yeah, um, yeah. R- really a lifeless movie. Yeah. Um, no heart. Uh, no setting. Yeah, I think it. Okay, so uh, McCabe goes below mash above okay. delinquent. Okay, uh, I, I think that sounds right. Okay. Um, uh, what's next? Images. Images. Okay. Okay, so uh, images go. Uh, is that our favorite film by Robert Altman? Uh, of of the ones we've got so far, I think so. I think it's better than uh, Cold Day in the Park. Again, Cold Day in the Park is a uh, you know c- kind of this this early Altman him blooming for the first time. Um, but you know, I, I don't think it necessarily has something more profound to say that it's a really great exercise in his expression of characters and direction. Uh, there, there's a bit more going on, and I think a, a uniqueness to images that really sets it apart is, is both one of Altman's films and a horror film, you know, at large there. So I think uh, even um, Cold Day in the Park kind of even hints at that kind of like being locked up and uh, kind of that gaslighting that's going on in images. There's a little bit of crossover between them. Um, there, there's definitely it's just interesting. There's definitely a continued thread of um, how you feed the audience information and who you right. you know kind of get them whose perspective you have them align with um that that kind of first comes up in that cold day in the park but really you know comes to the fold in, in images i think but yeah i, I think images is a wonderful excitement and again the score is so phenomenal and chilling um yeah, yeah so i i think it's a it's a good number one to to okay. go with for now you think so yeah better than um mash and uh mccabe for sure so uh, uh, number one yeah images congrats to images all right next up is the long goodbye uh where, where do you want it i mean i i, I think uh, images has had enough time on the throne i think I it's we'll put it around delinquents <laughs> delinquents okay okay <laughs> Um, because, like you said, the character is pretty pathetic. That's true. You know, not, not, you're right. Now, now that I think about it, it is a little <laughs> awful. Uh, it's, what is this, a sob story? 
Yeah. yeah. And God, that one song, they only had one fucking song to play throughout the whole movie. They couldn't get anything else. Yeah. More like a light movie, like motif. Yeah. Like, yeah. Why, why don't we say the long goodbye to the long goodbye? Bye. Uh, it's okay so, by me. Okay. <laughs> so long goodbye below the delinquents and then match. Yep. And then uh, after that, McCabe. You sure? Okay. You, McCabe is definitely worse than Long Goodbye, right? Well, yeah, I think it's yeah. pretty obvious. It's just okay. like in the West. They, I mean, they don't, yeah. Just want to double check. Um, okay, so, uh, yeah, so delinquent. Wait, did we put we put McCabe down, didn't we? We we shuffled it down the list, et cetera. Or is it a... Below, it's it's below a... Is it better? Yeah, it's, it's low mash. Oh, yeah, I guess, I, so I guess Long Goodbye is lower huh yeah that's fine uh okay so mccabe delinquents uh then the long goodbye okay then the countdown. that sounds great yep that sounds uh, would you rather have a countdown or a long goodbye in your life you know countdown does star james Kahn, who just died that was sad just before we put up the episode so i i think we can give some extra points to countdown i think long goodbye can go lower okay <laughs> you want to put it in last place yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I, I mean, I guess we could do that. Um, and uh, Elliot Gould's still alive, I believe, so he doesn't right. get that kind of title. If he dies next week, we might adjust the rating. Please um, don't pass away. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, I do. I do so, so next is uh, California Split. Um, maybe just top of the list. <laughs> maybe it's a, or maybe it's a California Split. Maybe we put it below images. Uh, I think it's up there. Where where do you think between it and, and images? Um, Shit. Um, yeah, maybe images. California split. Cold day in the park or below cold day in the park. Uh, yeah, I, I think it is better than cold day in the park. Just okay. uh, again because because it's got that. It, it's real smooth, even though it doesn't entirely come together. Ellie Gould's just so good in it, but I do feel like images is more effective at, at achieving what it aims to, um, I, I and so enough. unique. I think I'd put the best parts of California Split above Images, but like a total movie, I think Images is a cohesive thing. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd quite agree with that. Uh, again, it's uh, Images is always clear in its cohesion, but it does feel like it's cohesive. It just, you know, it, it, it feels like intentionally you, you, you struggle to grasp all of it. Uh, whereas, yeah, California Split does feel like it kind of just meanders charismatically for a while. <laughs> For sure. Uh, yeah, just like McCabe. It's like a meandering film and it never finds its center. So. Yeah, but at least it's set in the right place, you know? Like, you, you know right? where you're at. Yeah, that's not the West. That's Canada, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> it must be geographically confused, man. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> that's the Southwest, or <laughs> Not the Northwest. <laughs> man. Somebody get this Oldman guy a compass. I know. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, he can't even find his way out of a paper bag. That guy, he, he doesn't even know the country that he's in. <laughs> like, like Canada is a Western place. So. The Great Fox is the only Canadian Western I like. So. <laughs> All right. So last up for our ranking, we got Thieves Like Us. Okay. Uh, I don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even Should we just put it off the list? And just be like, Do I have to talk about Thieves Like Us again? I think, I, like 
I'm going to put somewhere here. So in, in my personal ranking, I'll give you this. I, I find a bit more value in, in MASH, even if, you know, again, it's it's not as, you know, the, the, the great film it was once proclaimed to be. Um, yeah. It's got something at least, some some kind of thesis that I can get behind. Uh, whereas Thieves Like Us, you know, it just feels a little like it doesn't quite have a, have a purpose. Um, you know, it's, it's well made enough, but, you know, without something uh, really driving it. Um, but that's still more than I can say for McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Yeah. So what, what do you think about putting it between MASH and McCabe there? Um, I think that's fine because it influenced uh, Oh Brother, where that, which is a, um, a place that knows where it is. At least the Coen brothers have a company. Yeah. Uh, All right. Uh, Steve's like us. Uh, finalized our rankings. Who's like us? Okay. Okay, let's see here. Um, well, shall we just read our, our final results? This week? Yeah, let's let's uh, let's hear it. Okay, first place, uh, best Altman film. Uh, this will probably stay here because of the prior conversations. Images, uh, congrats to Images. Um, California split at number two, a nice split there. Uh, uh, California, like it's going to uh, break off into the water one day. Uh, mm -hmm. A cold day in the park, uh, a warm day today because it lands number third in our list. Um, Rooster McLeod, not too high up in the clouds. Now it's fallen down our list, right? That's not pretty good. Yeah, pretty good there. Pretty good movie, though. Um, MASH, like mashed potatoes. We like mashed potatoes. Great movie, better than the next few. Um, McCabe and Miss Miller. How pretentious. Oh, no, hold, hold, hold on. Hey, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Did you just move oh, these like us? Like us. Yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. Thieves like us in fact uh, supersedes the uh, the worst work um, McCabe and Miss Miller, which is just like get over yourself. Uh, you don't need a ampersand. Say and please, like an American. <laughs> uh, then we have a delinquent, which is just <laughs> a, a worse movie than McCabe and Miss Miller, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah, I mean, maybe we come back to that and reevaluate because we might have some better opinions about it. Okay. Then, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, delinquents might go up further, um, but it is just like a public safety video. So, so that's that. Um, then countdown, which is like a you know, have, have you ever counted down before? Like the um, like the count on Sesame Street. That's on this ranking. We counted all the way down to here, but that's not it because. Before we go, we have the long goodbye. <laughs> Last play. Yeah, that sounds all correct. I guess we'll, uh, that'll be our long goodbye too. All right. Well, thanks so much, David. Maybe we'll evaluate this again next week, but I think this is a pretty um, start for the list. And uh, after a couple week break, I'm glad we came back. We're not going to confuse people with our ranking because uh, it's pretty solid. Yep, that sounds uh, good to me. So, uh, yeah. It's all good with me. All right. Thanks so much. <laughs> okay by me. Uh, thanks for listening to our podcast.
in my conversations and I post them online for entertainment. It's nice to know. At least you listen to the show because it's quite the possibility that nobody is listening to me in this modern world. Things have changed. Everybody's entertaining. Who's being entertained? Thank you for listening to my podcast. I really appreciate you took the time to hear what I have to say. Oh, thank you for listening to my podcast. You have millions of choices and you picked mine out of all the voices.